This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. How far would you go to fight for the truth? Our guest on this episode, Maria Racer, faces that question every single day. You might have heard this week that her news website Rappler beat tax evasion charges launched by the government of former Philippine leader Rodrigo Duterte. Charges that could have seen the crusading journalist and 2021 Nobel Peace Laureate jailed for more than 30 years. Maria and the Rappler team still face three more outstanding cases, which could see her sent to jail and the organisation closed down. Maria joined us in London at the end of last year at The Conduit, where she was in conversation with its founder, Paul Van Zyl. Her new book, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, is out now. I want to reiterate what an enormous honor and delight it is to have you here and uh, how important it is for this extraordinary community, for the world, for freedom of speech, for democracy, that you've been recognized in the way that you've been recognized and that you continue to speak out with the courage that you speak out with. When we were just talking beforehand in the podcast studio, you mentioned that you had to gain consent from more than one court in order to travel outside of the Philippines and in order to come here and be able to speak, which I think is a kind of rather powerful illustration of authoritarianism. My words, not yours. But I I think it would be useful just for you to tell the audience by way of introduction the legal peril that you find yourself in, because I think it's something that is worth opening our conversation with. We start with the bad stuff first. (laughs) So first, thank you, thank you. I mean, I see familiar faces in the audience who know Manila very well, Howard Johnson. You know, thank thank you for for coming, and it's so good to talk to you here, Paul. Look, uh, I start the book with you really don't realize what freedom means until you begin to lose it. You don't realize what your rights mean until you can't exercise them, like the right to travel. So uh, in 2016, the bottom-up exponential attacks on social media were followed by the weaponization of the law. And uh, I had in uh, 2018, the government tried to shut us down. We kept pushing back. There were 14 investigations, so from zero to 30% of our operating expenses. That's our legal fees. And then I went from 
being a journalist to having uh, 10 arrest warrants in less than two years. And in a six-week period, getting arrested twice. I'm told I can stick with the facts in here because in order to be here today, I have to go all the way to the Supreme Court among one of the many courts I have to ask permission from. But they've also put restrictions in place on what I can say about this. Uh, we have asked for a clarification of exactly what those restrictions mean, and I will come back to you with it. But this is the way I deal with it. Uh, I am thrilled to be here with you. I savor that I can travel. I try not to have Stockholm Syndrome. Um, and we keep doing our jobs. So on page three of your book, speaking about Rappler, organization that you founded in a remarkable, pioneering, swashbuckling, courageous media organization, you say... At Rappler, we exposed corruption and manipulation, not only in government, but increasingly in the technology companies that were already dominating our lives. And this is the sentence that I found startling. Starting in 2016, we began highlighting impunity on two fronts, President Rodrigo Duterte's drug war and Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook. Now, the juxtaposition of those two individuals is probably not something that Mark Zuckerberg wants. And I think I know what fighting impunity means for Duterte. But, but let's start with what fighting impunity um, for Duterte would look like, because I think it's something, as somebody who's worked on transitional justice, I know a little bit more about. And then we'll go into Zuckerberg. But what would that be? Um, for Duterte, it is rule, back to rule of law, right? We had a brutal drug war. The first casualty in my nation's battle for facts is exactly how many people were killed in our drug war. Because as our reporters, we have two reporters from Rappler who are here, uh, you know, as they know, when you're confronting authority, the police, for example, and the police say one day 7,000 people have been killed and then the next day they roll it back to 2,500, you know, that's dodgy. And so you remember, all right, you remember the 7,000, which, by the way, is what Amnesty International used in January 2017 for the number of people killed. But we watched it rolled back to the point that as of 2021, the official number went down to 5,000. And then our Commission on Human Rights, the Philippine Commission on Human Rights in December of 2018 said it was at least 27,000 people killed. Those are big numbers. And I think what we struggled to do was in the absence of facts, we tried to make those people real. And that's why we did an impunity series. So what does an end to impunity mean? It means justice for the people who were killed, which we have no idea how many have been killed. And in fact, in those statements, you kind of link these two individuals in a very interesting way, right? Absolutely. So yeah. an end of impunity means an end to killings. But in fact, those killings are enabled by an absence of facts. Absolutely. And one of the problems that we live in now is a world in which facts seem to be dissolving before our eyes and things that we took to be absolutely self-evident are now contested. So the second part of the question, what does an end to impunity for Mark Zuckerberg look like? So let me bring, like, before we go to the end of facts, we let's go to uh, a phrase called astroturfing, which is literally like fake grass, you know, it is seeding, uh, manufacturing reality, essentially, and making it seem like a, 
there's a fake groundswell of support when there was none to begin with, like support for the drug war. This is where I began to see that what's local, what's happening in the Philippines is also global, and what was happening in the Philippines would not have been possible without Silicon Valley, without Facebook. You have to know that Filipinos, for six years in a row, spent the most time online and on social media globally. And we were, <laughs> um, we are also 100%. All the Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook. Facebook is our internet. So this is part of the reason we became like a Petri dish. Or if you do genetic research, you know, you, you do research on fruit flies, Drosophila, because they have quick lifespan, so you can replace a gene and then see, and then it moves fast. So we were like your Drosophila, you were the targets. Or we were the guinea pigs, you were the goal. And the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower said, Chris Wiley, who's in London, said that, they tested, Cambridge Analytica tested these tactics of mass manipulation in our, in our countries, and then if it worked, they ported, that's his word, they ported it over to yours. To answer the question of what does an end to impunity look like for Mark Zuckerberg, you will read through the book all of the evidence we lived through. How did information operations work to stifle facts? Well, it attacked reporters. It attacked our young reporters. It attacked me, information operations, where free speech is used to stifle free speech, to pound to silence, right? When we showed, when we did a three-part series on the weaponization of the internet, I received immediately 90 hate messages per hour. Per hour, you know? And I think the first two weeks I was telling Paul, I was like, I checked all my data, and it did have an impact on Rappler because my co-founder actually said, maybe you should stop doing those stories because when you're attacked, the entire company's attacked. I didn't stop for very long. But um, that's part of it. Free speech used to pound free speech. UNESCO and ICFJ went over the data. It's a, one, of, one of their first big data case studies. And they showed that 60% of the attacks, almost half a million social media attacks, were meant to tear down my credibility so that you do not believe. Um, and the second, the 40% meant to tear down my spirit. Ooh. Once I saw the data, of course, I was like, okay, we keep going. And it didn't work. <laughs> you know? um, what does an end to impunity of Mark Zuckerberg look like? Of any social media platform, the Nobel laureates, Dimitri, uh, there are 10 of us, and then Dimitri Muratov and I came up with a 10-point action plan that we released last September, and the first tenet, stop surveillance for profit. This is the business model of a tech system that we didn't even have the words for until 2019 when Shoshana Zuboff named it, surveillance capitalism. And the, the summary of that is that if you are on social media, your data is replicated. So anything that you post, machine learning comes in, takes it, and builds a model of you, model of you that knows you better than you know yourself. Replace the word model with clone. We're cloned, and then artificial intelligence takes the clone of all of us, and that is the motherload database that is used to micro-target. Micro-target is different from advertising. The micro-target, your weakest moment to a message and feed that to you for profit. So when I say surveillance for profit, stop it, that means 
data privacy wins. That means antitrust rules kick into place. That means user safety. They're building codes for this building, right? You know when you walk into the building, it's not gonna collapse on you. Why are there no building codes for these algorithms that determine how our lives go? Or drugs, right? You can't A-B test. A-B test means like, uh, you can't test the drugs in real life, which is what social media platforms do. They test products in real life. In the Nobel lecture, I said this is a behavior modification system, and we are Pavlov's dogs. I mean, to keep your kids off for as long as you can. <laughs> we were speaking earlier about the, the easy cases and the harder cases. And I think particularly because this is a thoughtful uh, audience that we want to kind of go to the hard cases with, algorithmically boosting hate speech that leads to genocide in relation to in Myanmar against the Rohingya, there are ways that you can identify that. It's not always easy, but there are ways in which you can interrupt that virality, you can promote accountability, you can stop it, and it's a disgrace that we haven't. But I'm interested in exploring with you whether there is micro-targeting or virality for good, and what are the costs that we incur when we seek to remove micro-targeting for bad? And so we'll use some examples. So I'm profoundly concerned about the correlation between poor air quality and the disparate impact on the lives of poor people of color. And I'm trying to build a, a political party around it. And so what I do is I... I find a way of signing people up by targeting them in areas where people are, without even knowing it, inhaling this terrible air mm -hmm. and building a campaign around that in order to promote a whole series of structural reforms around air quality, but also decarbonization, stopping coal-fired power plants, getting to a just green transition, all things that we, we would probably agree with immediately. What happens when I can't target those people for good because it's surveillance for profit. The end doesn't justify the means. Privacy is the first um, requirement for a democracy because anything like that, and this is part of the reason what was once just used for advertising and marketing has been taken over by geopolitical power, Right? The Arab Spring in 2011 quickly changed to the Arab Winter once the government realized that it could do what was done in the Arab Spring. So any kind of micro-targeting, I believe, and this is what the data will show you, gives up too much privacy and can be exploited by authoritative rulers. I don't think it's a coincidence that 60% of the world today now live under authoritarian rule and that the number of democratic states have rolled back to 1989 levels. That is the consequence of this, this virulent business model. I'll quote Shoshana Zuboff here when she says this, and she's very clear. She, she claims that, that the tech platforms, these technology companies, have created a new market and the market that they've created is behavioral transactions. They sell our future behavior. And when they do that and they commoditize us in that way, when it is information and privacy, 
that leads very directly to freedom of expression, to agency, because information operations, when you pound something repeatedly and people believe a lie is a fact and you've insidiously manipulated them, how will you have integrity of elections? How can we hold power to account? And I'll go back to the Milan Kundera in The Unbearable Likeness of Being. He said, the struggle of man against power is a struggle of memory against forgetting. Our biology is being manipulated to make us forget. When we forget, we cannot hold power to account. And for that, all you have to just do is to look at the Philippines. Our presidential elections in May this year, we elected Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Overwhelmingly, right, the son, the only son and namesake of, of Ferdinand Marcos, who in 1986 was ousted in a people power revolt, the first of the kleptocrats, right? So... This is what happens when our emotions and our minds are manipulated. So you have a very moving, sort of three-sentence couple of words where you go, facts lost, history lost, Marcos won in the early parts of the book. And you desperately, through the work of your organization, try to bring facts into the fray. And the facts lost. So... Facts are really boring. You know this, right? <laughs> right. It's also the problem with the politics of the left. Sometimes we're a bit boring. Um, um, we've got to get better at speaking to different parts of people's bodies. Um, okay. So the, I guess the question is, tell people about the mechanics of how social media let the son of a discredited dictator win power? Like, how did it actually work? I think there are two things that happened, and it was a perfect storm, just like many other countries around the world where these the electorate voted for illiberal leaders, so they won democratically, right? Uh, in the Philippines, it was a combination of two things. The information operations that I talked about, which began in 2014, and we mapped this in Rappler. Uh, we showed you the frequency. We showed you the data, which are, is really boring, but fascinating when you see the, the impact on the society. But the other part that went hand-in-hand hand with that are the, reals, the real politic, which is in the end, Marcos allied with his vice president, Sara Duterte, the North and the South. And it was feudal dynastic politics that brought out the vote, right? So it's a combination of real people who, when our reporters would go to some of the poorer areas and ask, so why did you vote for Marcos? And we, t we talked to someone who said, well, it's because if I vote for him, I'm going to get gold. Howard knows this. I should give him the mic. Um, BBC, it's Manila. Um, you know, and, uh, and then, then we ask, so where did you hear that? YouTube. Uh, so fact and fiction merge. Um, and then the, the dynastic, feudal dynasties politically that brought out the vote. We're consolidating power. I think this is one of those instances. You know, having said that, I must say that 
you know, Rappler is in a slightly better position today than we were before. Under the Duterte administration, President Duterte had banned our palace reporter and me, even though I didn't really go to the palace, from the palace. And then, and then it, that ban, which began in February 2018, spread through any place where he was speaking. None of our reporters could have come into this room if he was here. And then went on to international his international travel. Well, President Marcos, Leanne Buan is here on a Shevening Fellowship. She was the one who covered the campaign of Marcos, and she weathered. She was browbeaten. Well, she can tell you more. But now, President Marcos has allowed, when he went to the UN General Assembly, had a reporter with him. He took our reporter. We're accredited to the palace. We had filed a petition at the Supreme Court, right? A case at the Supreme Court against uh, against getting pushed out. Never moved. Anyway, and we had a reporter going to Cambodia. So, I don't know. I can't, I try very hard not to have Stockholm Syndrome. Our rights to report should never have been taken away. But now they're back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'd like to ask, I mean, I think all too often we bemoan the coarsening of civil discourse. We bemoan the fact that the the rational political center is disintegrating. People live in their own echo chambers. We don't, we only consort with people whose views we agree with. So this is something that it's, it's almost become trite that we say it so much. Yes. And we also have algorithms that boost divisive, insulting, aggressive posts. And so that's part of this same phenomenon. So you've thought about this a great deal, but if you were, I don't know, I hate the idea of an information minister because it sounds totalitarian, you'd never take it, but if you were in a position to architect a law which created a healthier, better, more civic-minded social media ecosystem, how would you legislate to undermine the phenomenon that we have we rightly deplore? Yeah, I mean, there are three. You just made me think of three different things simultaneously, so I'm going to take them apart. The first is, please understand that part of the reason that that our public information ecosystem is so toxic is because of one algorithm. You know, how, what divides us? It's a chapter title. It's called uh, Chapter 7, How Friends of Friends Broke Democracy. And the subtitle, which is the personal lesson that I had, is Think Slow, Not Fast. So this device, this divisiveness in our society, which we have great words for, we call them echo chambers, it was really one algorithm that every social media platform used. 
Friends of Friends, a recommendation engine to grow your social media network, and in growing yours, they grow theirs, meaning they make more money. Right? How did that work? Well, in 2016, we didn't actually disagree on the facts, not as much as today. But a Friends of Friends algorithm, and I'm going to talk about it from the Philippines, you can, you can substitute any digital authoritarian you want, or authoritarian to be. You know, in 2016, if you were pro-Duterte, you moved further right. If you're anti-Duterte, you moved further left. Just this one algorithm of Friends of Friends, 2017, 2018, 2019, that created the division. And remember again, what is an algorithm? Opinion in code. So someone, they tested this on us in real time and realized that they could grow, we will click faster to grow our network if they recommend Friends of Friends. And what's the impact of that one algorithm? division. And then we tend to analyze it in terms of politics. So even journalists are careful about how to present the facts that one algorithm did. That's the first. The second is, please look at the entire upside-down value system of what these distribution platforms, the new gatekeepers, have created. It's like if you have kids, Pedro, and you then told your, your kids, I will reward you if you lie. And I will reward you more if you lie and make me afraid or make me hate. That's the values that are being rewarded in our information ecosystem. You create content that is device is full of fear, anger, and hate. It will spread. You lie, it will spread. MIT study, I said this, right? Lies spread at least six times faster than facts. And on Twitter, you are more prone, 70% more prone to share, to retweet the lie. So that's what's brought us into the upside down. So we're, it's like Stranger Things, we're in the upside down. And so our challenge how do we bring this to the right side up? The first is, why did they, I'm pulling out my phone, but why did they want to lie, right? Why do they reward the lie? Because when it's incendiary, you get roped in and they keep you scrolling on that phone. Because the more you scroll, the more time you spend on the platform, the more money the platforms make. That's connected to that. How else do they keep you scrolling? Micro-targeting, right? So, so this, is, this system intrinsically robs our lives of meaning. Be and, and think about this for the kids. Last, sorry, I'm giving you all the bad news in one chunk. Um, <laughs> the last thing is for our kids, right? For the next generation. Now, let's call them the TikTok generation. This social media is designed to be mildly addictive, they use the design of casinos. You've read this already. This is well known. There's a class in Stanford that teaches how to do this persuasive manipulation, right? They've stopped that class now, by the way, <laughs> after. But, but here's the thing. The plasticity of our brains. You know that the studies have shown that if we're talking and then you get an interruption on your phone and the conversation is, is intense, it will take us 20 minutes to get back to that same place. Right? So our attention span, our search for meaning, because that's when you're sucked into these things, they 
they don't really give you meaning. They don't really give you knowledge. They stir your emotions the, in order to change the way you think. I, I'll leave you with just one last thought of TikTok, the TikTok generation. There are two parts of TikTok, two different codes that are out in the world, the one for China and the one for the rest of the world. Are you familiar with this? The one for China has safeguards in place for children 14 years and below. It turns off after a certain number of hours. And there's educational video in the one for China. My friend Tristan Harris was joking. He said, China kept the spinach version of TikTok for its kids, for itself, and then exported the opioid version <laughs> to you. <laughs> so if you're on TikTok, be careful. <laughs> so the spinach opioid metaphor... <laughs> Um, it makes sense, doesn't it? It does, but it makes me think as an information manager, a minister, you might ban things. Um, and I'm being facetious, but, but what I'm really saying I is... I would ban code, right. definitely. Right, so, so there's not a single thing in your examples that I disagreed with. What I yearn for is how we regulate for this, because yeah. I think that it, the, the thing that we grapple with is the genie is out the bottle... What you describe is highly undesirable. And there are ways in which it can be slowed down and impeded. But can it be stopped and banned entirely? You change the design of what connects us to each other. You change the design of what delivers the news to you. A lot of these problems happened around 2014. That wasn't the only, not just because Russia began the seeding the meta narratives that led to the annexation of Crimea, which ultimately this year led to the actual invasion of Ukraine itself, right? Not just because of that, not because Marcos began changing history in 2014, but in 2014, that was when Facebook introduced instant articles. They literally asked major news groups to join the platform. We joined in 2015. That was when it was rolled out in the Philippines. And then they said, join us. But they didn't change the algorithms of distribution. So most of us still think of content, but it is the distribution that's the problem, right? The reason why genocide happened in Myanmar was hate and violence was spread virally through the platform's choices. So the question I have is, when journalists were the gatekeepers, we were held accountable for the public sphere. Today, two groups abdicated responsibility. We lost our gatekeeping powers to tech, so they abdicated responsibility. They made a heck of a lot more money than journalists do. I've run a business, remember? <laughs> um, but aside from the tech abdicating responsibility, so did our governments. Why is there no better business bureau for the mind? or for our emotions. The biggest problem, and this is E.O. Wilson, uh, uh, he, he's a scientist, a biologist, who looked at, um, at kind of behavior in ants, right? And he said that the greatest crisis we face is our paleolithic emotions, our medieval institutions, and our godlike technology. The difference in scale creates something completely different. And that's what we need to regulate. It isn't a content problem. My crazy neighbor can still say crazy things, but it shouldn't be distributed as facts to millions of people. 
So we're going to take a quick cultural refresher. The last time a Nobel Prize winner sat in that chair, Malala, we spoke about her favorite television program. And she said it was Ted Lasso. And it's because Ted Lasso has a mustache that's like her father's mustache, it turns out. Um, Yours is Star Trek. It is. And we share that kind of Star Trek passion. So we're going to geek. We were trekking upstairs. We're going (laughs) to geek out on Kirk and Spock for a moment. And there's a. We, we spoke about one of our favorite episodes in which Kirk falls in love with a woman. Edith Keeler. Who goes on, who gets killed crossing a road. And because she's killed crossing a road, she doesn't go on to form a peace movement driven by women that stops the United States entering the World, world War II that leads the Nazis to win. So Kirk travels back in time. That's the f- crucial part. Yes. He travels back in time and Spock arrives and says to Kirk in relation to a woman that he loves who's about to step into the face of a car that is going to kill her that he can save her and by so doing plunge the world into the hands of the Nazis or with this knowledge he can let her die. And Spock, being the Vulcan rationalist and utilitarian, says to Kirk, you know what you have to do. It is not logical, Captain. And guess what Kirk did? He held himself back from saving her. And she died, right? So what's our, what was our question? What were we going with this? This well, was an well, amazing thing. So <laughs> we love this. <laughs> I think what we were doing was sort of tussling between utilitarianism and love. I think it's sacrifice, right? Um, Love, by the way, this is how the book ends. You know, how do you fight hate? I know a journalist doesn't say this, but this is how you fight hate, right? I mean, if you have divisions in your family, you have love. This is how I end the book, actually. But in this one, in Kirk and Spock, in Edith Keeler's lives, where they go back uh, in time, the choice was really self, you know, the love, saving the love of his life, or history. I mean, that's kind of the choice that journalists make all the time. Your self-interest. This woman was banged against the wall, went through, like her life could have been much easier if she didn't keep asking those pesky questions. And I think that's the same if you talk to journalists all around the world. The journalist on the Ryan Air flight where Belarus diverted the plane to actually get him, right? Journalists are sacrificing because it is the right thing to do at this moment in time. So you speak um, movingly, and and we're going to stay on moral philosophy for a while in the book about the honor code that you learned at Princeton when you were studying and the kind of golden rule that you try and apply and how those two principles have sort of governed both your life and the kind of brand of journalism you you espouse. So speak a bit about those. What being a breaking news television journalist taught me is that you have to make quick decisions. I worked in conflict areas. There were times when you don't know what's happening, but you're live. 
and you have to crystallize the world in three bullet points in two minutes, and you cannot stumble, so you make quick calls. And what I've learned is that you know, the, there's always a struggle for honesty. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what the right thing to do is, but you struggle for that. That is the golden rule for me. Right? When I don't know who is telling the truth, I try to place myself in, in the other person's shoes. And then that's, I know it sounds religious. Religion is important. Faith is important. Religion can be manipulated. Faith is important. Faith cannot most of the time. The honor code in my university is when we all, the, the teacher walks out of the room and on every paper and every test you write, I pledge on my honor, you didn't cheat. And then at the same time, hand in hand with that is that if you saw anyone else cheating, you would report them. So you are responsible for your world. I really love those two things for every single tough decision I had to make. It was really only three. It was honesty, step in the, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then that last one of take responsibility for your world. And always it, it led me to the right quick decisions. So I was struck that your version of the honor code, speak out when injustice happens, Carl Jaspers evolved that when he spoke about metaphysical guilt and a question of German, on German, uh, in his essay, uh, the question of German guilt, where he said metaphysical guilt is the guilt you should feel when other people's rights are being violated and you fail to act. In, in the book, I say silence is complicity, and I'm, that's not even a direct quote from me, right? I think this is something that ripples through society, yes. I want to talk a little bit about, again, I was struck and kind of two-thirds of the way through the book, you spoke about the Philippines and this, it being this place with these incredibly high degrees of digital penetration. Facebook, highest numbers of YouTube downloads from 97% to 100% on Facebook. Cell phone penetration, just this incredible digital nation. And also, you learnt a lot about the kind of birthplace of a, a, a fundamentalist-inspired form of Islamic terrorism, using your words, both of which occurred as ground zero in the Philippines yes. and how that connected yes. to a different part of your career. So talk about that, because I was struck by the nexus between those two. Yeah, it's strange. The two biggest stories, so I've been a journalist for 36 years, and that's when I saw Back to the Future happen in 36 years. The two biggest stories, the 9-11 attacks, when the plane crashed into the Twin Towers, uh, it was a memory for me. And so I went back. I was on a treadmill in Jakarta because it was evening. I went back to my room. And back in the days when, when journalists have Rolodexes and we keep papers, I found the document, the interrogation report, of probably the first pilot that was recruited by al-Qaeda. He was arrested in the Philippines. His name is Abdul Hakim Murad. At that point in time, he was in a federal prison in the United States. And he talked in his interrogation report, told the Philippine police about a plot to hijack planes and crash them into buildings. And he named the buildings, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, Transamerica Building in San Francisco, among other things, right? There were other plots that were detailed in these reports, and those plots came alive over the next few years, including here. You guys remember Richard Reed, the shoe bomber? This was when the London airports were you know, at a standstill. Richard Reed 
was connected to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the architect of 9-11, who was in the Philippines in 1994, along with his nephew, Ramzi Youssef, who did the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993. Right? It took them six years to actually bring it down. What they did in 1994 was to test airport security in Manila, because we use the same as you here and in the United States, and they brought the liquid bomb through the, the heel of their shoes, and they actually exploded it on a Philippine Airlines flight. A Japanese businessman on his way to Nagoya died. That happened in 1994. And so most of the stories of Islamic terrorism, um, these things, the Philippines was, uh, was the, the kind of where they trained, but the theater of operations was Indonesia. So we were the place where they tested airport security and tactics, and the targets were the West. The second big story is information warfare, information operations. And again, why? You know, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the country with the most number of compromised accounts is the United States. The country with the second most number of compromised accounts is us, the Philippines. So it again, what we saw happening in the Philippines did not stay in the Philippines. And that, again, goes back to where, where am I leading with this? I want you guys to walk out of here realizing that what you do today will determine whether our democracy survives globally. We are in the last two minutes of democracy. Play basketball? I'm point guard. I'm short. I, do, I play basketball, right? And, and what we've found now is you go back to if you don't have integrity of facts, you don't have integrity of elections. So we just started counting the number of elections every year, 2022. Brazil escaped with 1%, right? Lula won by just 1%. Uh, this year, of course, you saw the Philippines, Kenya, those social democrats who you thought were safe, they started falling. And then we have Brazil, 1% only in the United States. They're celebrating because their midterms, they say, isn't as bad as it could have been. <laughs> Doesn't mean the death by a thousand cuts isn't there, right? We're still bleeding. It's still death by a thousand cuts. Next year, Venezuela, Mexico, Nigeria, Turkey, and you have other elections coming up. India will begin its regional elections. 2024 is the tipping point. And the big ones to really look, aside from the EU, which is not that big, sorry. Um, it's, you have India, the world's largest democracy. Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim population, where the front runner today is the son-in-law of former President Suharto, Prabowo. And then the United States, where Trump already declared he's running again. If we don't change anything in our information ecosystem, if nothing significant changes, we will democratically elect, we will continue this trend, we will democratically elect illiberal leaders. And what they do in their own countries is, is weaken and crush the institutions of democracy. And then what they do outside is they ally together. And Applebaum calls it Autocracy Inc. I call it Kleptocracy Inc. <laughs> Power and money. So last two minutes, right? And, and democracy, because of social media, has become a person-to-person -person defense of these values. It is hand-to-hand -hand combat. Hey there. 
I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm going to hand over, but in the last two minutes, on that rather stirring note, you know, we had two elections, as you rightly point out, if were it not for Biden's election, we wouldn't have the Inflation Reduction Act, we wouldn't have the biggest investment in clean climate investment that the world has arguably ever seen. And if Lula hadn't won, the Amazon may be gone, and we would not, you know, so these are two by minute fractions, right? So you now sketch out a scary and pessimistic set of elections coming up, wildly consequential for the planet. And there are really two choices, it seems, if you sketch out your view on social media. One is we root and branch, reform them. We end Mark Zuckerberg's impunity, in your word, and we start putting in place a better better advice bureau, a better citizens bureau, a, a more benign or a more robust accountable framework. Or we say... It's unlikely that we will get that in place in the time available to us. And then we've got to do fight hand-to-hand as people who care about the future on the platforms as they currently exist. So let's presume we've got to do both. Yes. But let's presume the first, the first option we're going to go and do, but we might not get done in time. Right. So now we've got the second option that we've got to do. So what should we as citizens and journalists be doing to win the battle on the flawed platforms as they currently exist. Yeah, um, we, and this is something in the book you can look at. We, we started calling this the facts first pH pyramid. We need a whole of society approach, right? The, look, in the long term, it is the solution is education. In the medium term, it's legislation. The EU is coming out with the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, but that's not till spring 2023. The short term is us. And what we did in the Philippines uh, was to try to organize a four-layer pyramid. I called it an influencer marketing campaign for facts. And almost 150 organizations in the Philippines took part. 16 news groups in layer one. News organizations never work together, but we did for this one um, because we grew up at a time of competition. And all we did was the supply of fact checks. Remember, fact checks are boring and they don't spread. So that's what layer two is. So we had the supply. Layer two is civil society, NGOs, human rights groups, environmental groups. Business jumped in. The church jumped in. The Philippines is Asia's largest Roman Catholic nation. And their task every day, is to share one of those boring fact checks, but add emotion. And in doing this, we found out that inspiration spreads as fast as anger, as hate. The third layer were the academics who were doing research on disinformation. Uh, And those academics, we, we had a data pipeline that was going through, they had access to it, and they told our people who, what were the meta narratives that were that were manipulating you, who was benefiting, who was losing. Layer four is the last most important part, law. 
the legal groups from the left to the right, the Philippine Bar Association of the Philippines, the Integrated Bar of the Philippines, the Free Legal Assistance Group, they came and what they did is they filed tactical and strategic litigation to protect the layers, a whole of society approach. Impunity online is impunity offline. And they filed almost, I mean, more than 21 cases in a three-month period. It wasn't enough because obviously it wasn't enough. We started too late. Uh, but in the first two weeks, the Philippine government, it succeeded enough that the Philippine government filed yet another petition against Rappler and the Commission on Human Rights. The Office of the Solicitor General went to the Supreme Court to ask us to stop fact-checking <laughs> because it's prior restraint, you know. so. So life gets really, really interesting. But it worked, and we're still continuing. You're laughing, right? So I guess, what will you do? And that people always ask me, what can we do right now? You have to look at your community. And you actually have to come out of the virtual world and organize in the real world. The last chapter is called Why Fascism is Winning. That's the title. And the subtitle is Collaborate, Collaborate, Collaborate. I'm a journalist, not an activist, but the data points us this way. So lots of other things, you know. It's like, I guess part of it is please don't look at the world through political lenses. Why are we in a political, in a gladiator's battle to death over politics? It shouldn't be. Look at it through behavioral science, behavioral economics, and then we begin to see how we're being manipulated. The motto of the Conduits Ubuntu, I am because we are, and it's the embodiment of collaboration, and we believe fundamentally that the one of the great antidotes to fascism and also the way you produce solutions is to collaborate in generous communities. So I couldn't agree with you more. On that note, I'm going to hand over to, there's probably like one person who wants to ask a question, and so don't be shy, that one person. Um, so if you'd like to ask a question, please raise your hand. Hi, my name is Anushree. Uh, hi. I'm a student journalist. Um, I had a question. So I feel like Twitter is in its last two minutes as well, perhaps. Facebook and Google are laying off people. And these are names that we have learned to associate with misinformation. But what is next? What is something that we're not looking at that maybe is the TikTok generation's problem? Asking for a friend. <laughs> I love your question, and you know, here's what I've learned to do given the uncertainty of life today. We have to be excited with not knowing, and we have to be energized with the process of creating. I think this is what's fun about Rappler. You know, uh, we're, there were only 12 of us when we started it, and it was, we weren't sure it was, if it was going to work, but we kept trying. And then when it worked, we kept it, and we did it collaboratively, right? So. Uh, it's kind of an idea for uh, tech. FTX shows you we need regulations, right? Uh, what's happening with, uh, with Twitter? How can one man who's not elected have so much power? That also goes to Mark Zuckerberg. How can one man, right? Uh, and then, of course, you heard, I mean, TikTok is, is scary. If, if, our, if the American social media platforms, if Facebook was like a mallet on our emotions and brains, TikTok is like a surgical probe. So what do we have? I would say, where are our countries on protection of its people against this tech? Because 
in genetic research, when they discovered two, two people won the Nobel Prize for CRISPR technology, where you can basically now customize a baby. I can have a blonde hair, blue eye baby. But Western nations realize that while we can do godlike things, we do not have the wisdom of gods. And they put guardrails in place. Why is this not done with our minds, with what connects us? Because there was certainly a lot of regulation over, over news organizations. Uh, this is the public sphere. Who owns the public sphere? Some of the other things I, I heard in discussions right now are, you know, people, what if we buy Twitter? Who will pay to keep the public sphere um, safe? Where we can actually, why do we not have a, a vision of the internet for the 21st century that's friendly to democracy, not just to making money? And you know what this time has taught us? Easy come is easy go. <laughs> it took me a year and a half to set up the Jakarta Bureau. It took Facebook like this. It's nationwide, right? So easy come is easy go, and I think maybe this, this means, this time period, maybe we can create something that's more sustainable and that isn't cannibalizing our lives. Good evening, Maria. Thank you so much for being here. Um, just wanted to say, uh, really appreciate your courage and your inspiration uh, for Filipinos and for young people uh, around the world. Um, I actually run the School of Social Justice and we teach people how to address uh, racism, sexism, human rights abuses, environmental damage. Uh, and I'm curious to know for our students, how do we practically teach them, the TikTok generation, uh, how to practically make a difference? Thanks. Ang hirap naman ng mga tanong mo. I said, what a tough question. Um, I think the first is we need to understand the impact on behavior, and we need to then let our kids know this. Uh, in one of the groups I worked with today, they don't let their kids on social media. Uh, actually, if you think about it, there's an age before you can buy alcohol, right? Because it is addictive. Why isn't there an age before you can get on these addictive platforms? Uh, but that's not helping you with what we have. Let me talk about, like, I, the one thing, I, let me slip in the, a 10-point action plan that we think. We talked about it briefly, but how we can fix this that we released September, and then I'll go back to the TikTok generation. There's a 10-point action plan. Dmitry Muratov and I uh, introduced it in Oslo in September. It's backed by 10 other Nobel laureates and about 100 other groups. The 10-point action plan has three buckets. The first is to stop surveillance for profit. Let's not fool around with the polluted water or content moderation, right? That's a whack-a-mole game. Go back up to the biggest, the cause of the problem, which is surveillance for profit. The second one is stop coded bias. Um, there's a nicer way of, that they said it, but coded bias is built into the code, right? Like, if you're a woman or LGBTQ, if you were marginalized in the real world, you are further marginalized online. And the, I just use coded bias as kind of a signal for me. It's a film that, was, that came out in Sundance in January 2020 where Joy, this woman from Kenya who's Canadian, was at MIT and she was doing an AI experiment. 
And she realized she couldn't do the AI experiment because her face was black and she was a woman. So the only way she could do it is if she put a white mask on. And she did. So stop coded bias a second. The third is critical. Journalism as antidote to tyranny. So those are the three buckets. Now, how do we deal with the TikTok generation? First, legislation. <laughs> I really feel that's the first. The second is, let's teach our kids. You can't even, teaching our kids about this doesn't even help because it is addictive. It's like giving them opium, right? So I'm not quite sure. That's a tough question. Let me think about it. Tweet me. <laughs> Tweet me. <laughs> And, and the 10-point plan is on page 267 at the back of this book, yes. uh, and they will be on sale later. Hi, Maria. It's very surreal to see you in such a wonderful building, because normally I'm used to seeing Maria scurrying between court cases, which we talked about, because I was the BBC correspondent for five years, covering the, the 30 years. So I did most of my damage on World Service Radio, um, getting that story out um, and so it's nice to see you here um, in my home city, and for a change, you're not being persecuted. Um, but this is a tricky question, as you would expect uh, from a journalist. I've noticed while I've been away, I've left in uh, July, that uh, Bong Bong, the president, is really looking quite benign so far, that he has been you know, playing nice, effectively. But there are I still- I hope he always does, but go ahead. <laughs> but there are, that your cases are still going on. Yes. Senator Laila de Lima is still uh, in, in the jail. slammer for, how long has she been there for now? By February, it'll be seven years. Seven years, a, a, a senator locked up for that long on, a, on spurious charges. So I'm also noticing that a friend of mine said that it's like the Bush, Trump scenario where Bush suddenly looks good because Trump was so bad, but this way it's the other way around. That Duterte was so bad, the bong bong's looking good. So my question to you, which is a trick question, is we're now seeing nearly five months of him in power. Normally people review it after 100 days. How are you seeing his presidency at the moment? Let me answer in two ways. The first is news as a whole the attacks against news organizations online are more strategic and far more insidious. So it's no longer information operations on social media. And they've changed their tactics to just attacking one post and they pile on, right? So that's on social media. But what's happened after the Nobel Prize in December last year was DDoS attack, distributed denial of service attacks, which is kind of it's against all the major news organizations. When I got home, first during the Nobel, that stream was attacked. It didn't go down. But when we got home, all the major news sites were taken down. And then in addition to that, so this kept happening. During the presidential debate, CNN Philippines was taken down in the middle of the debate by distributed denial of service attacks. The second thing is far more insidious. You guys are familiar with SEO black hat tactics? Oh, yes, she, she knows the web. SEO black hat tactics takes junk, right? And then as it, it essentially infuses junk into links, hundreds of thousands of them, to lower your site's credibility for Google search. So imagine now when you search Marcos, what will come up first, because all the news groups were were attacked by SEO black hat tactics. 
from a Swedish company for the record. I will tweet this for you. So this is a bit more insidious and it is, it's industry-wide. If it's happening to us, it's probably happening to you. I don't know though. I mean, we can look. Um, so there's that. In some ways, it's more strategic, right? But here's where I, and let me respond as a person facing seven criminal cases. I believe President Marcos is out to rehabilitate, to reclaim the Marcos name, to move it away from kleptocracy. He wants to do good, and in that sense, I am with him. Because if the Philippines does better, and it will have to be economically better, then we will do better. But all of the other things, we elected an entirely new old system. We are back to the future. And Kleptocracy Inc. is winning. So I don't know which direction it's going to go. But I'm not hyper. I leave it to my reporters to be hypercritical. <laughs> I, think, I also think it's fair to say that it would be extraordinarily damaging for the son of a dictator seeking to rehabilitate his image and for a country seeking to attract foreign direct investment to imprison a Nobel Prize winner. So I hope. <laughs> Thank you, Maria, for this uh, enlightening talk. Um, so as many of the audience know, London is notorious for providing kleptocracy-enabling services, yes. uh, such as money laundering and yes. infamous, absolutely infamous for libel lawsuits, like the one against Catherine Belton for Putin's people. So yeah. my question is, have you experienced any repression here in the UK f from um, the Philippines? And no. I mean, uh, sorry, finish, uh, and? Uh, I've forgotten the second part, sorry. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, well, it seems a good news answer then. <laughs> well, first, you know, I had dinner the other night with Bill Browder, and it was fascinating to, I, I don't have secure, oh, maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> sorry. It's your fault. Um, <laughs> um, I, 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 um, the Philippines, I still have hope for the Philippines. We are not Russia. We're not Iran. We're not even Venezuela. You know, we're not, we haven't jailed the journalist Turkey has jailed. Knock on, <laughs> you know. Um, so I still have hope. And, I, and this goes back to what the people want. And I think that because we have an American-style constitution with a Bill of Rights, I think our government, look, I'm still, Rappler's still alive. I'm still out of prison. Maybe I shouldn't say that too loudly. But, you know, I feel like uh, in many instances, we are in kind of the center right now. And we're in the center partly because of the South China Sea issue. China and Russia. President Duterte brought in, in October of 2016, he goes to Beijing and says, I'm pivoting the Philippines away from the United States to China and Russia. No one had ever heard of Russia. We'd had no relations with Russia. And now we have Russian naval vessels with us, right? So I, I don't know. But to answer your question, no, I have not. And maybe I'm naive. I don't think I am. I mean, I'm pretty pragmatic on certain things. I still have hope. And that is the reason why we continue to do our jobs. Um, thank you. And I've remembered the second part of my question now. <laughs> and that is, um, have you notice any part of, of or any part the London laundromat has played in the repression that you experienced in the Philippines? Have I noticed? Any kind of money laundering, any role that money laundering Oh my has... God, so much. 
I mean, sorry, money laundering, right? Yeah. I mean, look yeah. at what happened. Um, the bank. Uh, they, yes, there, there was a huge like money laundering scheme that came through the Philippines. The, the problem with the Philippines is that, and it's been a problem from the very beginning, we have weak law and order, and that's part of what was what President Duterte ran on, law and order, not rule of law, rule by law, right? Um, and then the second one is we have endemic corruption. Uh, one of the ways you could launder money through the Philippines, for example, is through the Chinese syndicates that have come through. And let me not get myself in trouble anymore. We can talk about it in person later. <laughs> oh, I'm going to take a, f- a final question in the back. Yeah. Hi, thank you so much. Um, it's been really wonderful hearing you speak. So I just had, was hoping to get your thoughts on something, some work I've been doing recently. I'm a forensic scientist, but I focus on the application in human rights justice. And I recently worked on some research looking at user-generated evidence and information posted on social media sites, mainly owned by Meta, yep. and used for, there's a lot of research being done, a lot of initiatives in the legal space and in journalism about using that for accountability. Mm. And I was wondering if I could get your thoughts and perspectives on that. I'd love to hear what you think, but offhand I would say that it is so full of trash. You know, and and part of the problem with us is we're filled with junk. You can't tell fact from fiction. It is so easy to create exponential lies. So I'd love to hear what you think. But what we do is we do two things, right? We, look, we use natural language processing to scour the way messages, what new messages are being spread. And then we also use, in, in the Philippines, we have something we call Shark Tank because we were essentially alpha partners of Facebook. We're frenemies. We're also, we're, we're still, there are only two Filipino fact-checking partners of Facebook. We remain a fact-checking partner. And much as I speak the way I do and what you've seen, what you will read in the book, I believe this is important for the future. We need technology, but technology for good, right? Not for profit alone. Um, so what we do, what we had is we actually had our database. We were one of the few news organizations. In fact, I think the only one globally where we could see Facebook's information ecosystem and we could track the networks that spread the lies. So we would fact check something. If it's a lie, we look at the networks that spread it. They're recidivist networks. And then we tell Facebook, you know, what can you do about this? I'm on like all sorts of NDAs. So <laughs> someone gets offended by <laughs> But I think that there are many ways we can use tools. Here's the other part, right? AI-generated content. We know that this is coming, but news organizations should be using this as well. Uh, GPT-3, GPT-4, these are, this is how we can create content that is aligned. Like Paul and I were talking about, so what does it look like for good? Here's a social network for good. You're not going to be on it that long, and they won't make that much money. But what if it connects boundary spanners? You know the way society really works, the way you get things done? And this is an old paper by Peter Granovetter. It's called The Strength of Weak Ties. It's actually, like, if you only stick to your networks, it's, hom- it's homophily, and you probably won't get the job. 
but it'll be a boundary spanner to the next that will allow you to move things in the real world. It will be our connection that Paul helped bring together that maybe we can find. So it's the strength of weak ties. Imagine if you have a social network that connects weak ties for social good. I mean, that would be really interesting. I just don't see how you make money out of it, though. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, f- a final word. Yeah. I mean, I dare to give you a final word on anything. That's terrifying, the thought. <laughs> Nobody could. Um, but you hinted at it. But I want to come back to this group because I think we all feel that we're living in a moment where the clock, the, the sand is running through the hourglass of history. We're up against devastating existential climate emergency. We're in a world of extraordinary populism. We're in a state of unbridled inequality. Small groups of people have incredible power correlated with these platforms that you rightly critique. We also want to harness ourselves into these communities that are capable collectively of doing good. And we need new recruits into those communities all the time. And we need to give people facts about the state of the world that are accurate. And then we need to give them pathways to action which enable them, consistent with planetary boundaries, to act. Social networks seem to me to be indispensable to that endeavor, right? They are the things that can harness us together, that give us pathways to action. Yes. You said so. You, you, in, you, in one of your quotes, you said, we, we bring together in Rappler collectives for action and the food we feed them is journalism. I yes. think that's your almost exact quote, right? Yes. And I was very taken by that. And there's something in me as a kind of the activist in me that doesn't want to abandon micro-targeting for good that doesn't want to abandon virality for good emotions, that we care about our children so we're impelled to act, or we care about seeing an act of racism or xenophobia or misogyny or anti-LGBT action, so we want to act. And I want people to know about it. And I want to call out dictators. I want them to know about it. So some part of this discourse troubles me a bit because it makes me feel as though the bad guys, and they're always guys, (laughs) <laughs> are better at, using, <laughs> at better at using these platforms than we are. Mm-hmm. So we critique the platforms rather than the practice. And I'm wondering if we don't risk throwing the baby out with the bathwater a little bit in this conversation. There's a load of things we could do to regulate these terrible platforms, definitely. But there's some part of it, which is we want the competition of ideas and the virality mm-hmm. in them so that we can win. Yes. And... I'd love you just to reflect on that because it's there, there, I'm just there's something about tonight's conversation that's left me thinking that. Yeah, so I want you to look at the data. I, I don't think that we can use micro targeting for good because it is always inevitably exploited for evil, right? And the, why? Because the clones, our clones, are ours. Right? I mean, it is ours. Or maybe the other way is if you put guardrails. But I don't think it's possible. But let me think about this, and I will come back to you on, you know, so when someone has your clone and knows your private thoughts, your fears, your dreams, that's no longer a democracy. Right? That's a fundamental thing. So that's the first. The second thing is that 
the reason why the bad guys are better at it is because it is insidious manipulation and it is lying and they have no conscience. They do it. They use information operations or information warfare in the case of some of the countries that we already know. Um, the third point, so what can we do for good? You know so much about peace and justice and, and how to take divided communities and bring them together. Why do we not build something like that, but build it in from the very beginning? Why adapt to these surveillance for profit paradigms that uses the worst of humanity against us, that exploits our emotions, our fear? You know, even, even journalists, when, when journalists are all together and we are in a, com in, in a combat zone, fear spreads in East Timor all of the major news groups were staying at the Turismo. I took my CNN team and we stayed inside the compound where government, Indonesian government officials had homes. We kept the home. And because we weren't with the group where fear spread, we stayed the longest in East Timor. He worked in East Timor, that's why. Um, so I feel like we need to understand our weaknesses. The last thing, the last thing I'll, I'll add, and this is a great study you should look at. Maybe we build based on this. We can build the tech. You know, it isn't just those tech bros that get to build tech. There's something from the Framingham Heart Study where it's a three degrees of influence rule. You can pick up, this is Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. They did a study that showed that every emotion spreads through three degrees of influence. This is in the physical world, right? So anger, fear, smoking spreads through three degrees of influence. Obesity spreads through three degrees of influence. Even loneliness, you figure if you're lonely, you'll be lonely alone, right? <laughs> but loneliness in the first degree spreads to, if I'm feeling lonely, my friend has a 54% chance of feeling lonely because I do. My friend's friend, the second degree, has a 25% chance of feeling lonely because I do. And my friend's friend's friend has a 15% chance of feeling lonely because I do. So if we look at something like this and look at inspiration as something that can spread, right? So there are two things I would put together. One, let's look at the basic principles of what we can build tech-wise that will enable the best of society. And second, we understand how groups work because this is also how the virulent ideology of Al-Qaeda spread in groups. Groups do things that individual people with consciences don't. So these are some of the things I think we can do. And I just don't believe tech bro is the only way to go. <laughs> Sorry, so, tech bro. I have <laughs> friends there. <laughs> Please get this book. This is a remarkably inspirational human being we've heard tonight. And the world is enormously lucky to have you. And thank you for coming. Thank you. This episode of the podcast starred Maria Racer and was presented by Paul Van Zyl. Special thanks to our friends at The Conduit for hosting the event. The episode was produced by Nicole Wong, and the series is made by me and Esme Bright. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>